Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Our opinion next turns to the problem of what the judicial role should be. They just told me to sign here and here, and what I signed, and I guess I signed for my deportation. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Just about two years ago, in January of 2016, Life of the Law presented Undocumented, a report on the Obama administration's DACA program, or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. The 2012 program offered undocumented immigrants who came to the U.S. as children a chance to defer deportation. Jonathan Hirsch traveled to Austin, Texas, where he met with Luis Morales, a young man who came to the U.S. from Mexico with his family when he was just eight years old. Since we shared Luis's story, his status and the status of the DACA program have been in jeopardy. Throughout 2016, while campaigning for president, Donald Trump threatened to put an end to the DACA program on his first day in office. Like many of Trump's promises, that didn't happen. But on September 5, 2017, Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced the Justice Department was ending the DACA program, but would give Congress six months to try and save the policy. Sessions also announced the Trump administration would not accept any new DACA applications, but would allow those in the DACA program to apply for a two-year renewal if they applied by Thursday, October 5th. Unless Congress acts to save the DACA program, the last permit will expire on March 5, 2020. We want to take you back to January 2016 to share Luis's story. And then at the end of the episode, we'll talk to Luis's mother and his attorney to find out what has happened to him and his family since we first met him nearly two years ago. Now, undocumented. It was 2013. Luis Perez Morales was 19. He'd been living in the U.S. without documents since he was eight. And now, a new government policy called DACA meant he could apply to live and work here legally. He started to get an application together, and his mom helped him set up an appointment with an attorney. Then, a few weeks later, Luis was driving around Texas's hill country with some friends. The low brush and wide horizons of South Texas rushed past the windows. Well, me and two friends went to San Antonio just to cruise around for a bit. And then from there, I fell asleep. And when my friend said she took a wrong turn, that I don't, I don't know, you know? And then from there, when I woke up, I saw the sirens on the back. While Luis was asleep in the back seat, local authorities stopped the car. Well, I asked my, my friend that was driving, I asked her if, what, what, what had happened. And she, she said that she didn't know that she just got pulled over. The driver and the other passenger both had Texas state IDs, but Luis didn't. All he had was an ID from the community college where he was taking classes. He didn't have a social security number either. By law, Luis wasn't obligated to give the police a social security number or to admit he didn't have one, but he didn't know that. A female officer approached the car. Yeah, Sheriff came to the car. She said that my friend got pulled over for speeding. 
she asked everybody for social security and well my friends gave her, gave the share the IDs I gave the share of my ID too but uh, I told her that I didn't have a social at the time I wasn't really thinking of anything until the uh, border patrol came <laughs> and then that's when I got uh, nervous while Luis slept his friends had driven into borderland territory less than 50 miles from the US Mexico border the local sheriff told Luis and his friends to wait until Customs and Border Patrol officers could arrive. They told us to step out of the car. Well, we got out the car, and they made us stand in front of this van. <clears throat> this van. And then they were asking a lot of questions that what we were doing here and stuff like that, you know. Well, I told um, we all told the Border Patrol. We told them that we were just cruising around. And from there, they put us in all in handcuffs. Luis was taken into custody and transferred to a border patrol station. From the movies, he knew that if you're arrested, you get a phone call. He says he asked the border patrol agents if he could call his mother, Rosa. Oh, I asked them for a phone call. They said, not until I fill out those papers. Luis couldn't read the papers he'd been given because he's legally blind. He says that he asked if an agent would read the papers aloud, but that no one did. A report his attorney later obtained indicates that Luis was informed of his rights. It includes Luis's date of birth, country of origin, and the exact location and nature of all six of his tattoos. But nowhere on the report does it indicate that any official documentation was read aloud to him. Then Luis was given another form. Well, they just told me to sign here and here. Well, I signed. I guess I signed for my deportation. The form given to him by Border Patrol agents said he'd do what's called a voluntary return. Without knowing it, Luis had signed a piece of paper that said he would go back to Mexico. Later that day, he was deported. Elora Mukherjee is director of the Immigrants' Rights Clinic at Columbia University. Mukherjee says undocumented immigrants are often asked to sign voluntary deportation documents. Unfortunately, that's not an uncommon experience. I hear about that very experience in case after case after case. And most of the time, she says, they don't realize that by signing such a form, they are waiving their rights to stay in the U.S. America should be a land that welcomes refugees, welcomes immigrants. We're a country built on immigrants, and yet at this moment in history, our country's policies are particularly punitive. Luis's parents came to the U.S. for the reasons most people come here. Better paying jobs, more opportunity, safety. Rosa Morales is Luis's mother. She was the person who made an appointment for Luis to start the process of applying for DACA a few weeks before he was detained. When Luis was a baby, back in Mexico, Rosa was the first person who noticed that her son's left eye had started to look milky, opalescent. At first, doctors weren't sure whether he would be able to see at all. He was born with a vision problem. It's related to a bacteria that I had during the pregnancy. We took him to the ophthalmologist. We've tried to do everything possible so he could see. Two surgeries were performed on Luis in Mexico City but the doctors were unable to save his left eye. 
After the operation, the eye started getting smaller and smaller. I went to the doctor and asked why it was getting smaller and smaller. They said that the bacteria had killed all his nerves. They tried to do everything possible to save it, but they couldn't. Knowing that they couldn't get the care Luis would need in their village, Rosa says she and her husband decided to move their family across the border. Luis's dad crossed first, then Rosa. And in 2001, Luis crossed the border to join his family in the U.S. He was eight. When I got here, I enrolled into elementary school. I didn't like it at first. (laughs) I don't know, I just felt like going back to Mexico. At first, I didn't want to be here. I didn't want to be brought over here. But then I, I got used to it, yeah, I started liking everything about being here, you know. Luis made friends. By his estimation, he was treated well by other classmates. And despite the vision problems, he learned English and completed his freshman year of high school. But learning was still challenging for Luis, and he started skipping classes. Before finishing his sophomore year, he dropped out and got a job working in construction. He says he was content with his life in the U.S. He had a girlfriend for a while, and together they have a son, Alexander. Luis definitely didn't want to go back to Mexico. Well, Mexico, it's, it's, it's a pretty place, you know, but it's just not for me. I, I prefer being here, you know, where I'm raised, where I was raised. I guess Mexico now is, to me, that a place that I would just like to visit, um, but I wouldn't go back to live over there. In 2001, a year before Luis first crossed the border as a kid, Congress introduced a bill called the DREAM Act. If passed, the bill would provide a path to lawful residency for immigrants who arrived in the U.S. as kids because of decisions made by their parents or other relatives. Many versions of the DREAM Act have been introduced in the Senate and Congress, and all of them have failed. Then, in June of 2012, the Obama administration wrote a memo instructing all branches of the DHS to exercise, quote, prosecutorial discretion in cases where young people are brought to the U.S. as children, a policy that is called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, DACA for short. Musafar Chishti is the director of the Migration Policy Institute's New York City office at New York University. He explained to me exactly what DACA is supposed to do. Uh, It says anyone who who entered the country before they were 16 and now are less than 31 years of age and they have either gone to high school or are GED pro- or are pursuing college or military service, that they are eligible to apply for the DACA program. You are allowed to stay in the country without fear of removal. That means your potential removal is suspended. It's not say that we'll never remove you, but we sort of going to put you, to, to explain it the best, we're going to put you in the back of the line. Basically, Chishti says that if someone came with their parents, there's no way they could have intended to break the law, that they were just doing what their parents told them to do. But Chishti also points out that DACA is by no means legislation itself, nor is it a legal status. It's a postponement of your deportation, and it's entirely at the discretion of immigration enforcement agents, which means that one enforcement agent could look at your case and see you as DACA eligible, and another might not. DACA grants important benefits, 
DACA recipients can get a social security number. They can apply for a work permit. They can get jobs previously available only to lawful permanent residents, jobs that pay more, and often give workers protection not available for under-the-table employment. So when Luis found out he might be eligible for DACA, this is back before his friend's car was stopped by the police, he knew he wanted to apply. To meet all the requirements, he had to finish high school or the equivalent, so he'd enrolled in a GED program. And his mother Rosa had set up an appointment with an attorney named Chito Vela to start the paperwork. The thing is, and this is pretty confusing, so bear with me, by law, a person can be eligible for DACA and still get deported. And if that person does get deported, they'll no longer be considered eligible for DACA. And when Luis was deported, he hadn't yet submitted his DACA paperwork. So Chito Vela took up that case, too. Uh, Luis's case is a kind of case that makes me want to stop practicing immigration law. Chito is tall and slight, with bushy salt-and-pepper sideburns. He wears Wrangler jeans, cowboy boots, and a paisley tie. He runs a private law practice in Austin that focuses on immigration cases. When we first meet, he says that he has two weeks to figure out how to keep Luis in the country. After that, he'll either have to go back to Mexico, or if he stays in the U.S., face deportation again. I asked Chito what he thinks happened that night when Luis and his friends were stopped by the police. So it's still not completely clear what happened. What should have happened was that the Border Patrol agents should have immediately recognized that Luis was uh, in all likelihood eligible for the for DACA and should have released him and allowed him to apply for DACA. In, in, in kind of a, a, a second-hand uh, situation, the, if they took him into custody, once he was in custody, they should have evaluated him for the requirements, for the, the, for the DACA requirements, and could have even granted him DACA while he was in custody. That, that is within their powers, within um, the ICE, U.S. ICE's powers. That didn't happen. Instead, after his arrest, Luis was deported to Mexico. A couple of weeks later, he crossed the border back into the U.S. legally in Laredo, Texas. At the border, Luis told the authorities from Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, that he was seeking asylum because he didn't feel safe or at home in Mexico. From there, he was detained by ICE at the South Texas Detention Center for a month. He was let out on bond while his asylum case was reviewed. The asylum request was denied. Being deported had disqualified him for DACA, but he applied anyway. Chito, his attorney, said that he had hoped the circumstances of Luis's deportation would warrant an exception. The DACA application was denied. Chito then requested what is called a stay of removal to allow for an appeal. But all subsequent appeals to ICE regarding Luis's case have been denied. In the two and a half years since Luis was first detained and deported, immigration policy has changed. The Obama administration extended the deferral period from two to three years and decided that parents of lawful permanent residents will be protected from deportation. Even though he has a son who was born here, the decision came too late to help Luis. When I met Luis, he was living a quiet life, largely under the radar. He'd been working in construction, but he lost the job when a friend who helped him get it was arrested. 
So he'd started to work the graveyard shift cleaning corporate offices. Hello? Luis. Huh? How you doing? I'm good. All right. Uh, we're going to head over to your house right now, all right? Uh, sure. What's, uh, what's your address again? Luis's apartment is just a few miles from the quiet suburb where his attorney, Chito, lives. But the two places look very different. Where Chito's neighborhood is filled with single-family homes, with lawns and trees in each yard, the area Luis lives in is made up of old apartment complexes and vacant lots. Luis opens the door to the apartment he shares with his two brothers, his mother, and his father. He's wearing a black shirt, black pants, and black shoes. We go upstairs to his bedroom, where his brother Chris is playing Call of Duty. During the week, Luis's two-year-old son Alexander lives with his mother. On the weekends, he shares Luis's small bedroom. Hey, what what about the tattoos, though? You were going to show me the rest oh, of the, yeah. the tattoos? Yeah, I got it. Oh, it's going to be hard. Well, I got this one. When we sit down, he shows me the tattoos on his hands. He has the name of an ex-girlfriend on one hand, and his own name on the other, Luis. He's got more on his arms and shoulders, but I've made him uncomfortable by asking about the tattoos. He says that after he was deported and legally re-entered the U.S. and was in the custody of Immigration and Customs Enforcement Authority, his tattoos made officials suspicious. Because of the tattoos, officers assumed that he was part of a gang. The ICE officials thought that your tattoos might have been gang-related. Luis is soft-spoken. When he's not at work, he likes to play video games with his brothers and to spend time with his son. He says he's always been a bit of a loner and very sensitive about being legally blind. In fact, he agreed to be interviewed for this story because it's for radio, so no one will see his face. Because his attorney told him, he was running out of options. Remember, Luis has no criminal record and his entire family lives in the U.S. Luis's brothers were born here and are citizens. His son was also born here and is a citizen. And before he was deported, Luis was enrolled in a GED program and preparing to apply for DACA. Every attorney, scholar, and advocate that I spoke with considered Luis to be what the DHS refers to as a low priority for deportation. Because of Luis's disability, he was unable to read the document given to him the night he was detained. Nowhere on the report file does it indicate that the voluntary deportation forms were read aloud before he was told to sign them. Border Patrol authorities who processed Luis didn't apply the sort of discretion called for in the Obama administration's 2012 memo, meaning they didn't recognize the fact that he was DACA eligible. And because those authorities decided to deport him, Luis then became ineligible for DACA. I asked him to tell me about the night he was first detained. The night in 2013 when Border Patrol officials told him they were deporting him to Mexico, a country he hadn't seen since he was eight years old. And then from there, they took me to the room to, to the cell. To the cell, and they just, and they just said that uh, that I was going to Mexico, and we were just they were just waiting on the bus to arrive. I told them I was scared because I didn't know, I didn't know that uh, that place. <clears throat> well. I don't know, a lot of this stuff came to my mind, stuff like that. Like what? I don't know, it's just like this feeling you get when you don't think of anything, but your mind goes blank, you know? Have you ever had that feeling? There's a lot of controversy over the Obama administration's decision to expand DACA. 
several states have challenged the expansion in court. And on January 19th, the Supreme Court announced it's going to review Obama's executive action on immigration. The case will be argued in April and decided in late June, right in the middle of the 2016 presidential election. Meanwhile, immigration and customs enforcement officials throughout the country have been carrying out raids to deport undocumented Latino immigrants who have arrived here more recently. As for Luis Perez Morales, ICE officials agreed to review his case one last time. And they concluded that, quote, the totality of circumstances do not support the favorable exercise of prosecutorial discretion. Which means that now Luis is supposed to go home to Mexico. The problem is that as far as Luis and everyone he knows is concerned, home is the United States. For Life of the Law, I'm Jonathan Hirsch. You've been listening to Jonathan Hirsch's January 2016 report, Undocumented. With the help of his family and a local immigration attorney, Luis was sorting out the maze of DACA requirements and regulations, immigration enforcement, and shifting American politics. He was hoping to qualify for deferred deportation under the DACA program. That's where our story left off. This morning, I spoke with his attorney. Jose Chito Vela and his mother to ask them to share what has happened since we first met Luis nearly two years ago. First of all, Chito, can you tell us what's happened with his appeal? We got a stay of removal uh, and we applied for DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, uh, for which he, he is eligible, or at least should be eligible. Uh, we were granted time to apply and see if we could get DACA, but uh, DACA was ultimately denied to him. Uh, and then we asked for one final stay of removal uh, on, uh, on humanitarian grounds, uh, and it was denied. And so now he has a final order of removal and uh, no uh, pending relief or really no pending case at this point. That would have been about a year ago, about a year and a half ago, I believe. I, I, I want to say it was around August 2016. Uh, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, U.S. ICE, uh, they have final say in cases such as Luis's, where someone has a final order of removal, they can stay it for certain periods of time. Uh, and they have done so in the past, but uh, in, in, for, in many different circumstances, oftentimes for humanitarian reasons, oftentimes for the benefit of a, a U.S. citizen child, but uh, for whatever reason, they decided not to uh, continue him on those stays. So, Chido, could you ask to describe what Luis's life is like, you know, since he received that final stay? ¿Cómo, cómo es la vida de Luis como de día a día? Uh, está trabajando, está estudiando. ¿Qué está haciendo Luis? Pues está trabajando y pues día trabaja, día no trabaja por lo mismo que no, pues no, no se le hace difícil. Y pues estudiando, no, ahorita no está estudiando. He's working uh, on a just day-to-day -day basis. Uh, he has not continued his schooling. He's working, but it's difficult finding work. 
but he's doing uh, uh, the best he can. Pues yo siento que se siente con miedo de pues de salir a la calle y de pues de ir a buscar trabajo de para sacar a su hijo adelante pues tiene una frustración no lo demuestra pero sí se siente a veces lo veo deprimido porque pues no logra establecerse. Uh, he's uh, uh, very worried and it's very stressful for him just to go out and about. Uh, to uh, uh, work, it's a danger to work, but he has to work so that he can uh, support his son. Uh, it, it affects him. He doesn't show it, but uh, but I see it in him, and I see him him down, and I see him uh, depressed. Uh, but but he continues on. Pues la verdad, pues vivimos con miedo. Siempre estamos a la defensiva de ver, de intentar con cuidado, de que pues nos deprimimos, pero tratamos de salir adelante y pues vencer un poco el pues el miedo para poder sacar a nuestros otros hijos adelante. We're very worried uh, with that danger hanging over our head. It's a it's a constant concern uh, and it's a constant worry. But we do the best we can to to just move forward and and uh, and live our lives. I mean, do you make plans? Do you? Do you say, okay, if Luis is picked up by immigration or by, I mean, isn't that the risk that if he's stopped by any law enforcement, would they they would turn him over to immigration? Is that is that the risk? Um, that is a risk, uh, particularly in this new era of uh, of immigration enforcement. Uh, it is quite likely that if he were to be contacted by law enforcement, arrested for some reason, uh, that he would uh, end up in immigration custody and possibly uh, back in Mexico in, in, in short order. Uh, unfortunately, the Texas legislature passed a bill this last session, uh, Senate Bill 4, which gives broad powers to local law enforcement to inquire about the an immigrant's legal status, a person's legal status. Uh, so there is a very real fear that if he is in the wrong place at the wrong time and runs into the wrong officer, uh, they could very well inquire about his uh, his legal status. Uh, that said, Luis speaks perfect English. He is and culturally an American and, and, and seems very American to someone that encounters him. Uh, so uh, I, I, I hope that he would be okay in that situation, but no, that it's a, it's a, no doubt it's a, it's a very real risk. So what is the plan going forward? Do, has the family sat down together and said, okay, like if this happens, this is what we'll, we'll do? Have they discussed that? Pues un plan, un plan, no lo tenemos más que ir a buscar refugio con familias en México en caso de que nos lleguen a deportar. Well, a, a, a plan, an actual plan, we, we really don't have a plan other than to find refuge for him in Mexico with, with family members if, uh, if, if he were to be deported. So if he were deported, if Luis Morales were deported back to, back, or to Mexico, um, would they go back? And I mean, would he? What would be the future? I mean, would he continue to try to come back and live in the United States illegally at risk, or would he stay in Mexico? I mean, what is the future? Pues, si se diera el caso, 
a, pues trataríamos de volverlo a traer, porque para allá nos daría miedo, pues hasta nosotros nos da miedo irnos para allá, está muy fea la situación allá en México. Y llevarme a mis otros hijos, para mí sería un, pues un vivir con miedo de que les pasara algo a los demás, o a todos en el camino, estando ya en México, porque pues allá la situación en México está muy difícil. If he were deported, if Luis were deported, we would probably try and bring him back because it's very dangerous in Mexico and, and he, he, he has no life there. Uh, and additionally, I would not take my other children there because of the situation. Just traveling into Mexico, returning to Mexico would be dangerous and then living in Mexico would be dangerous. So we would probably not, as a family, return to Mexico if Luis was uh, deported. How many other children does she have, and what is their stand? What's happening with them? Dos más. She has two other children. Both of her other children were born in the United States, born in Texas. They're they're living within a family in which two children can can stay in the United States and have lives. The parents and the one and Luis, the one child who was born in Mexico do not have legal status, so they live in this kind of um, zone of, of at, always being at risk, always wondering what's going to happen? Uh, they, they really do. Uh, in immigration, we call it a mixed status family, uh, and it's a very, very common situation where the parents and an older child or the older children do not have permission to be in the United States and are in constant fear of detention and or deportation, while the younger children are born in the United States and have full access to all the uh, privileges of U.S. citizenship. Uh, it's a very common situation and, uh, and obviously uh, very, very difficult for, uh, for, for families. Could you, I mean, just one last question. Could you ask what it's like for her right now, what her life is like with her son, with her other two children, with her husband. What's it like to live in the United States right now? Pues un poco difícil, un poco difícil se nos ha estado haciendo. Tratamos de, pues, de seguir lo mejor posible, estar, pues, ver la vida más positivamente, porque estarnos dejando deprimir, no, pues, no nos sirve de nada, nos enfermamos y y pues no, tratamos de hacer lo mejor para pues de tratar de ser de estar mejor con con nuestros hijos. Uh, it's difficult. It's uh it's uh, uh very difficult right now for uh all of us, but uh we have to move ahead. We can't just let ourselves get down. We have to keep a, a positive outlook and 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 we have to keep uh moving forward. Uh for our children, for ourselves, for our future. Uh, we, we have to keep moving forward. What's her hope for the future? I mean, what hope does she hold out now that her, the DACA uh, petition has been denied, a final denial for her son? What does she, what does she see the future, the best case scenario? Pues a ver, mi esperanza es saber si hay una reforma migratoria para, pues, para podernos arreglar nuestros estatus para poder seguir apoyando pues, a Luis, a estar con mis hijos. We hope for an immigration form uh, so we can gain legal status, uh, so we can help Luis, and so uh, 
uh, we can be there for our, our other children. You've been listening to an interview with Jose Chito Vela, Luis Morales' attorney and his mother. We were speaking by phone. President Donald Trump has announced his administration is not accepting any new DACA permits. And unless Congress is able to find a way over the next six months to save the program, all extensions of DACA will end in March 2020. Join us next time on Life of the Law when we go in studio with our team at KQED in San Francisco and with Jose Chito Vela in the studios of KUT in Austin to talk about DACA, immigration, the law, and his decision to run for state office. That's next time on Life of the Law. This episode of Life of the Law was reported by Jonathan Hirsch and myself. Tony Gannon is our senior producer. Kirsten Jesuits Heidel and Rachel Kane post produced the episode. Music from the story was by Blue Dot Sessions, with additional music by Ian Koss. Katie McMurrin is our engineer at KQD Radio in San Francisco. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX public radio exchange. We're funded by the National Science Foundation, the Law and Society Association, and you. We want to take a minute to thank Dunstan Orchard for his ongoing contributions to Life of the Law. Ten, twenty, or fifty dollar monthly donations make it possible for our team to plan ahead. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and follow the donate button. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.